Thank you. Thank you, Rosemary. Uh, Rosemary is my hero. She is came and picked me up at the airport today, drove me around, and when I had a very big tear in my skirt, she actually sewed it back together. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, this, is, uh, this is really, I, am, I can't tell you. I love talking to Catholic and the women, are, the nuns, I bet your nuns are telling me what to do. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> All my years of Catholic school. Um, there, I have just, I'm absolutely thrilled to be with you. I look at this vibrant audience. I walked in um, a few hours ago and people were talking and excited and you're changing our church and thank you from the bottom of my heart. You are saving it. I, it's so exciting and I wanna thank um, Anne-Marie Nocella, who kept writing me and saying, this is the date, this is what you should do, this is what will happen. And Chris Schenk, who I think you have done a wonderful job leading this absolutely stunning movement. So thank you. And uh, this evening I was, I got to go to the earlier reception and uh, what I love to do is go around and ask, why did you get involved? How did you get involved? What, what inspired you? And at this reception, everybody said two words, Father Louis Trevison. So I want to thank him for his great inspiration. Over and over again. Where is he? Where is he? Thank you. And I'm thrilled, um, you know, when you get to meet somebody who you've read and admired for a long time, Father Don Cousins, thank you so much for coming as well. Really an inspiration. So all of this is great. Um, I'm, I'm just so thrilled. And what I'd love to talk about tonight, I, I'm here really because another hero of mine, Catherine Pinkerton, I don't know if any of you saw her, but <laughs> she gave a great prayer at the Democratic Convention. And she spoke so well and so eloquently, and you felt Mother Superior is right there among us. <laughs> Um, but she's the, she's the reason so much good legislation gets through Congress, um, and she's the reason that I'm here this evening. Um, and the deeper reason I suppose I'm here is how did I come to get in, so interested in what my Catholic Church should look like? And the, the real reason was that, as some of you know, I come from a political family. <laughs> and I was in office. Um, and over the last six years, I was so horrified by what was going on in politics. And I thought the, the church was doing things that I thought was inappropriate, the Catholic Church and the Christian right on one hand, and then my own Democratic Party on the other hand was saying, don't get involved in politics. And I thought that was the wrong response. I thought the right response is get the right church involved in politics. And therefore, we have to create the best church so your politics is right. <laughs> um, and that's really what persuaded me to um, get involved in, in this whole idea of reforming our church and reforming our politics because it seems to me that politics is really a reflection of moral values. 
It's a decision about how you protect the poor, how you take care of the elderly, how you make your most solemn, common decisions together. And how do you do it? Um, you do it based on your values. What do you think is important? What do you care about? And so because our values so often come from our religious institutions, it was critical, I believed, to get our religious institutions changed. And so I am so pleased to see you. Um, but this was not, I'm gonna just talk a little bit about my own journey and in this. Um, having said that, my first desire to uh, question the church did not really come in the last six years. It came a lot earlier, uh, when I was in college. When I was in college, um, I'd gone to, as and I'll talk about it in a little bit, um, I'd gone to you know, 10 and a half years of Catholic education. Um, I loved the nuns. I learned so much from them. I learned so much from my family. And so it had always been, for me, a source of comfort and strength. And, and I often believed what the church said. And then um, one of my best friends in college got pregnant and decided to have an abortion. And that was really tough for me because on one hand, I had my church that I loved and respected and cared for and thought knew what they were doing. And on the other hand, I had my friend who I loved and cared for and realized her dedication to many of the values that I held. And I tried to think about how one could reconcile those two loves. And this, um, she told me about this. She didn't tell me for about a year and a half that she had done this because she knew that I would be upset and that I wouldn't, it would be tough for me and she valued our friendship. And so what I decided, when I learned about it, I was, as you can imagine, this was you know, 35 years ago, actually 40 years ago. <laughs> I guess I have to be honest in this group. And <laughs> uh, um, so I thought, what I would do is write my senior thesis uh, on abortion and abortion, what the church had said over the years. And obviously what I found was very interesting. Um, I learned a lot in writing it. And what I learned is that, um, that really the church's position was more recent in the last 200 years. I learned that Thomas Aquinas had said that uh, the, the soul doesn't really enter the, uh, the fetus until quickening. And I saw uh, that he had also said there's no such thing as an intrinsic evil, that things have to be looked at reasonably and rationally and with faith and love. These were not the things that I was hearing from my church, but it was things that I was learning as I read about church history. Um, I also learned that uh, the treatment of women uh, had changed, that in the early church, uh, women were part of the, of the, the ecclesiastes, that they preached, that they talked about what was important. And I saw that by the third century, Tertullian was calling women uh, the devil's gateway, and that um, St. Augustine uh, was dis describing women as not fully human that males were the fully human. And so I learned early, you know, I learned when I was in 
just about to graduate from college, that my church, who I loved, um, really chain A had a changeable theology on one hand, at least on a very important issue of abortion, and also that their treatment of women uh, had really been terrible throughout the years. And that was important for me. Um, I didn't do much about it. I wrote the thesis, um, and then I thought somebody was going to solve the problem of abortion, and that would have been an interesting issue in 1973, but it probably wouldn't be beyond that. I was wrong. When I ran for Congress, it came back to haunt me again. I ran for Congress in 1986, and I was very excited about getting involved in politics and following in being the first woman in my family to get to, to run for office. And I thought of why I was running and what I wanted to accomplish, and I thought so much came from my, uh, my Catholic background. I had previously worked at the Robert Kennedy Memorial where I had started the Robert Kennedy Human Rights Award. And we had worked a lot in El Salvador, in Nicaragua. I had worked with the nuns who had given their lives for human rights. I had seen Archbishop Romero speak so strongly against corruption. And uh, I had traveled throughout the world and wherever I'd gone, I had felt at home on every Sunday and I'd go to Catholic church. And I've you know, gone to Mass and saw this, seen the same Mass in every, in every parish throughout the world. I was also uh, believed that what I was doing in politics was helping the, those who were least among us. I mean, that was my democratic background. That was my background as a member of the Kennedy family, and that was my background as a Catholic. So it was very tough when I went to my parish church uh, uh, one Sunday, and the priest, who had actually gone to college with my husband, my husband went to Loyola College, condemned me from the pulpit. That was really tough. Um, it was really tough when I was scheduled to speak at a parochial school, and I was sitting, I was giving this graduation speech at the John F. Kennedy High School at Constitution Hall. And I was about to go from there to St. Clair's Parish in Essex, Maryland, and I got a note. We've just been told by the diocese that you don't have to come. So when that happened, and I saw myself having speech after speech being canceled and being picketed when I went to my, when I was asked to give the graduation speech at my Catholic high school, which the signs that said, how dare you call yourself a Catholic? I went, to the arch I went to the bishop in Baltimore, and I was devastated. I had tears in my eyes. I was crying because I said, how could my church, who I love and who I was really trying to uh, you know, fulfill their teachings, condemn me? It was like being hurt and condemned by a member of my own family. I just felt awful. He was very kind, but he did not change the policy. And so um, what I've learned, and that's happened, I have to tell you, over the last 20 years. I've been picketed. I've been, um, actually, I went down to 
Honduras recently to protest the logging, uh, the illegal logging, and 200 women pr protested against me um, and said she protects trees, not babies. The signs were in English, which showed that somebody from the Reagan administration had actually connected figured out this idea. I mean, why would they write signs in English? They didn't speak English. I told my friend Tim Hagen, who some of you may know about this, and he said, good for you, Kathleen. You probably put $50 in every of those women's hands. <laughs> and they didn't know what they were signing. They didn't know what the protest was about. They were just paid to protest against me. Anyway, after 20 years of this, um, what I've I was, as I said, very upset and angry when it first happened, but after 20 years, I've really come to understand what's going on in the church, and the simple matter is, they're just afraid of women. <laughs> and there are serious issues, I don't say that with abortion, but there are serious issues with lots of issues, without questions in our lives, uh, with the death penalty, uh, with war, um, with racism. I mean, we can go through many with torture. Uh, there are lots of serious issues, and it is not surprising to me that the church has chosen the one sin that only women can commit. So when this happens, um, a number, and this, you know, I'm not the only person this has happened to, obviously, um, but I felt, I have felt it very publicly. Um, the question is, what do you do? And there are a lot of my friends and colleagues who have said, I'm leaving the Catholic Church. This is one of how you treat me. I'll become an Episcopalian or a Unitarian or a Presbyterian. I mean, I gave a speech at a you know, Presbyterian church, and I went on and on, and, the, and I said, and you look, you have a woman minister. And the woman said, yeah, and I grew up Catholic. <laughs> and that has happened a lot. I've gone into so many Protestant churches that have women ministers, and they said, I grew up Catholic, but I wanted to preach. I wanted to be able to to speak, I felt the spirit of God within me, and this is where I had to um, fulfill it. So there are people who clearly left the church. I'm not one of them. I wanted to stay in my church because I love my church very, very much. And I, thank you. I won't turn it into wine, <laughs> although I'd like to. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I really do love the church. I grew up, as you know, Catholic in, a, in this large Catholic family, the oldest of, of 11 children, and I saw, you know, each, each morning we would say prayers uh, together at my mother's bed. We would say prayers before and after every meal. We would say evening prayers together. Um, we would pray the rosary every night at, at 8 o'clock, and then my mother would read us 60 saints for boys or 60 saints for girls. 
Um, my father would read the Bible to us, and you know, when I, I told this story this, this today, um, and when my father read the Bible to her, I told my grandmother, Rose Kennedy, that my father read the Bible, and she said, he did? Catholics aren't supposed to read the Bible. <laughs> And actually, when I, when I uh, told my, when my mother read my book, she said, oh my gosh, Kathleen, you know, when I went to Catholic girls' school, which she went to as well, we weren't allowed to read the Bible. So that's changed. Um, we were also, you know, we went to Catholic schools, we went to Mass, um, not only every Sunday, but in the summer, because my mother thought she should be like her mother-in-law. We went to Mass, daily Mass. So when other kids all summer long were getting to sleep till 10 o'clock in the morning, we were waking up at seven o'clock. My mother piling us into the car with the dogs, we'd go off to St. Francis. And I don't really know if I liked that, <laughs> but we did it. So it was very strong. Um, in every uh, room in our house, there was a little uh, holy water um, holder so that you were supposed to bless yourself whenever you walked into any room. And, you know, we, we prayed to all the saints. We obviously had St. Christopher, St. Anthony, which found my mother parking spaces. <laughs> he, was, he was really, he's really good at that, actually. Just the other day, I was with my mother in um, Connecticut Avenue in Washington, D.C., and she found, he found us a place in front of Neiman Marcus. <laughs> St. Anthony is great. Um, so, you know, there was a, there's a real sense, as you, can, as you know, for all of you who grew up Catholic, you were, it was part of you. It was what you breathed. It was you, what you believed. And I was so lucky to have that, and I feel that way, because I think the Catholic faith taught us a sense of peace and comfort, but also discomfort. You know, you're always supposed to be doing something better. We were always praying for the, uh, you know, souls in purgatory, you know, you, whenever you, something was tough, you'd have to offer it up, right, for the souls in purgatory? And there was always the question, should you offer up the soul that was about to get into heaven, or should you start where they just got out of hell so they could get up the ladder? <laughs> I mean, this is your mental picture all the time. Where are you on that ladder in purgatory? Was, you know, it's great. You think about it all the time. Um, and so there's that sense of, of a, spirit, a rich spiritual life, and there was a sense that you took on tough issues. My, when I was young, my father was, some of you know, on the McClellan Committee and in investigating the Teamsters. I have to tell you this has nothing to do with the Catholic Church, but my mother, rather than take me to the playground when I was four and five, would take me to the McClellan hearings. And so I, some of my first words were, I refuse to answer that question. <laughs> anyway, but, it was tough, and they didn't, those mobsters didn't like what my father was doing. So when I went to Our Lady of Victory, Sister Mary Adele, the principal, would have me go up to her office um, because I couldn't leave the school with the other kids. I had to wait in her office because the, those, those mobsters threatened to throw acid in my eyes and the eyes of my brothers and, and sisters because they wanted to threaten us um, because they were so angry at my father. So we learned early on there was a really tough life out there. And we also learned that you um, had to do service and to give to others. We were often quoted St. Luke's admonition that from those who have been given much, much will be expected. Um, 
our sense of God, and this is what I love about being you know, Catholic, which is, you know, there's a capital C and then a small c, which means universal, which means we embrace others. The God that we were supposed to pray for that I think my father understood was a large God. Uh, when he went to South Africa, he came back and having seen apartheid, he wrote an article for Look Magazine that said, suppose God is black. Because the idea was God wasn't just gonna look like you and just be interested in you and your life, although uh, God could do that, but it was the God of all of us and we had to think about justice for everybody. And love. Um, when my uncle, John Kennedy, died, my father wrote me a letter three days after he died um, when he was at the White House um, in the midst of the funeral. And he said, Dear Kathleen, you seem to understand that Jack died and was buried today. As the oldest of the Kennedy grandchildren, you have a special responsibility, a responsibility to John and Joe, my, my brother and my cousin, um, be kind to others and work for your country. Love, Daddy. So you think that in the midst of the incredible sadness and sense of loss, when he could be angry and resentful and bitter and wanting to get back and wondering about his own future and his own life and what he would do now that his brother was gone, he sits down and writes his daughter about love and working for your country and being kind to others. I think that's what you get when you have a deep spiritual faith that we learn in the Catholic Church. We learn about the suffering and the redemption and the idea that is that you go forward. You're, you, you don't have revenge. You go forward with love and compassion. And that's what I think he taught us as part of our family which we learn from our church and also as a political statement. Um, many of you know the story of when Martin Luther King was killed. My father went to Indianapolis and when the mayor told him not to go into the city, he said, I'm going because my whole campaign is about love and compassion and shared suffering. Um, and he gave one of the great speeches of his life in which he said to the people who he had just told that Martin Luther King had been killed, and he said, and the rumors are that he was killed by a white man. But he said, don't be bitter because my own brother was killed by a white man. So what we need in this country is love and compassion for those who suffer, whether they be white or they be black. Please say a prayer for our country, and go back to your own homes. And Indianapolis was one of the few cities that night that did not burst into flames, as a hundred other cities did. And the next day, as many of you know, he came to Cleveland and spoke at the city club and about the danger of violence. All of that coming from this very spiritual sense that you get when you I think are part of what we learn from our Catholic faith. You can take suffering and you can transform it to something that lives and goes on um, and is can be hopeful to people because you share that suffering or you get bitter. And he believed, as he said that night in Cleveland, that suffering opens us up 
and to the idea that we are all brothers and sisters together, that we share this short life on earth and we share the same dreams and hopes with each other. Now that is the faith and the church that I love. This is the church that when the tragedies that faced our family came, we would gather together to pray the rosary, to sing, to go to mass, uh, time after time, because the church gave us a sense of something greater than ourselves, a sense that of course we're gonna sacrifice, of course life isn't fair, but we have to do more. And that if you believe that, you're, that God is taking care of you, that you believe that you will, you, will, you will transform whatever experience you have to something better. We can't judge why this is happening, but we can ask ourselves how we can transform that suffering. So that's what I think the best of the church is. And I think that's why I've decided to stay in the church. I've also decided to stay in the church because I am a fighter with love. <laughs> and as a Democrat I, and an American, I'm accustomed to not agreeing with my government. <laughs> but it doesn't make me any less an American. And so I don't think just because I disagree with the hierarchy, uh, it doesn't make me any less a Catholic. In fact, I often say, I believe I am as Catholic as any pope. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I come to you and I am so excited about what you're trying to do. Um, I think there are two ways to change, to reform the Catholic Church, and I'm sure many of you have thought about this a lot. I think one of the, and I'll just outline, I think the two ways I see the changing the church. One is actually telling the hierarchy that what they're doing is wrong. And my hero in this, of course, is Catherine of Siena. I know you, I think this quote should be on every document that you put out. I just love this quote. This is Catherine to the Pope. My dearest Babo, forgive my presumption in saying what I've said. What I am compelled by gentle first truth to say, that it is his will, Father, that is what he is asking of you. Now, since he has given you authority and you have accepted it, you ought to be using the power and strength that is yours. If you don't intend to use it, it would be better and more to God's honor and the good of your soul to resign. And she became the first woman doctrine of the church. So we do have this great tradition, and it is good to remember that tradition of speaking out to the pope and to the hierarchy about what needs to be said. They often don't want to listen. 
but that doesn't mean that you don't speak. Sometimes it will get penetrate. Not always, but that's part of what we have to do. And that's why I think Chris writing to the Pope was so critically important and getting 4,000 letters to the Pope. Um, I write about this in my book, but I was talking to Cardinal McCarrick at one point, and I said to him, why don't you lead a reform of the church? And of course, oh, no, that's my second point. No, I'm gonna tell you that later. First I said, he, we were talking about what's going on in the church, and he said one of the real problems is that Rome only hears from the right-wing Catholics, because they think, of course the Pope will listen to me, because he agrees with me. Um, and the left-wing Catholics don't write them. And therefore, the Pope doesn't hear an other viewpoint. So part of what we have to do, and this is what you're doing, is write letters to the Pope, a letter-writing campaign, so that he hears from, and the hierarchy hears from other people and, lists, and starts to understand that there's another world out there that is willing to communicate with them. So that's, I think, very important to do. And it's hard for them to see it. It is very difficult. I told Chris the story about Teresa Kane. Should I tell that story? Teresa Kane, as many of you know, but for those who don't remember, was the head of the nuns. There must be a better title. <laughs> yeah, I know. Leadership Conference of Women Religious. I knew there was something better than chief nun. Anyway, so as the leadership council, head of the leadership council, she was asked to welcome um, the Pope. And when she welcomed him, she pointed out that there were no women priests and that he should consider women as equal to men. Well, apparently that really disturbed him. <laughs> you laugh, it's true. And he was upset. And so <laughs> the only obvious thing that had happened, the Vatican thought, is that she made a mistake and she misspoke. So they called her to Rome to, to let her explain why she misspoke and why the words that came out of her mouth really were in the wrong order and she really should just explain what she really meant and please come to Rome and explain. So she describes, she described to me how she went to Rome and there was she came the night before and then she was supposed to appear at 10 o'clock in the morning and she walked into this big hallway and there was this long refectory table and the Monsignor at one end. And of course, she went to the Monsignor and didn't sit at the other end, but went up to the Monsignor and said, well, I'll just share the head of the table with you. Why don't you move over? <laughs> And they said, well, uh, okay. They had never seen this before. And then she said, um, well, we'll have our discussion and I'll give you my statement at the end. And they thought, of course, she would apologize immediately. And at the end, she said, you know, women are more than half the human race. I think they should be considered to be priests. So she didn't back down. And what she told me is that she heard the feedback from the Vatican was, did you hear what Teresa Kane did? She sat at the head of the table. She thought she was equal to us. <laughs> They're still talking about it. 
So part of it is really trying to change the truth, going into their face, talking to them, making them listen, um, and you are doing that. Um, part of it, I think, is also, uh, and I think some of you are doing this as well, um, I've been working with Jeff Boise, who was a former, the uh, youngest partner ever at Goldman Sachs, which until yesterday was supposed to be a good thing to be. <laughs> um, and he was very upset by the church. He was upset by the pederasty scandal, but he was also realized that the finances of the church made the pederasty scandal possible. Money, he knew from Goldman Sachs, is the root of a, not all, but a lot of evil. And so he thought what really needed to be done, he's actually a Republican, but um, he still thought the church should be reformed. And he thought what you should focus is on is what we've had to do in nonprofits, accountability, transparency, figuring out where the money goes. And he has made a real effort just to do the basic things that you have to do because of Sarbanes-Oxley, which is figure out the accountability and transparency. He said, and the fact that you should have lay people on all the diocesan councils making decisions. He pointed out that very few scandals happened at the Catholic colleges because you had a laity who understood what the law said. And where I did the scandals particularly appear in the Catholic parishes um, is because it was an old boys network. So he pushed that very hard, and I think that's a really good idea as well, and I'm sure you're pushing that, that part of it is not just changing the ideology, but if you go to where the money is, you can control a lot. The other way I think you can reform the church is really what I believe Solidarity did in Poland. And this was really Adam Micknick's idea. We gave Adam Micknick, who was the intellectual force behind Solidarity, and who's written beautifully about how you just have to develop alternative institutions. What he said to do with the Communist Party is you don't attack them directly, you just build something else. And eventually they'll fall, the Communists will fall of their own weight and corruption and will be there to take over. And I think that's really what is also going on. Um, I know that you have this idea that you are the future church, but I would suggest that you change your title to you are the present church. You are the church today. You don't have to wait for it to change. You are the change that is already happening. When somebody said, it's true. You know, when, when somebody said, well, we need married priests. We have married priests. If you go to Africa, they're all married. And some of them have more than one wife. And they come to Rome, and nobody with their wives and their retinue, and they, everybody knows it. They just don't say it. It's happening. It's happening in our churches. I've gone to faith communities here in the United States. I get they're the priests who are married, who say mass. Then people say, we need women priests. We have women priests. They have been ordained. You don't have to say we're waiting. Just acknowledge that it is already happening within us and act as though it's perfectly reasonable and normal and acceptable and 
That's great. I've been to masses in which the priest has been the woman. She's said the mass, she's given communion. It's great. I go to a Carmelite monastery where we pray to, to the female God every Sunday. She is everywhere. And any priest who comes to that church and to our, that monastery has to talk about God as she. So we can make things happen, not by just changing the hierarchy. They're going to fall of their own accord. What we have to do is have faith in ourselves and faith in the Holy Spirit. Now, I gave up my theory at dinner, which didn't go over too well, but I'm going to pursue it. I think that it's very fortunate. I mean, I think it's been awful to have the uh, pederasty scandal for the sake of the children. Awful. Terrible. But it has shown the corruption at the heart of the church. This, the, uh, the fact that we had to pay so much money has showed the corruption. So it has hurt the credibility of the hierarchy when they've had to deal with other issues. And it has strengthened all of us and made it clear to all of us uh, that we have an important role to save our church. I think there's a reason that the Holy Spirit is saying it's more difficult to have priests. There are fabulous priests, and they're sitting in our midst tonight. Absolutely. And they're at many Jesuit colleges, and there are many um, monks and priests that are terrific. But as my father said, priests tend to be Republican, nuns tend to be uh, Democrats, so we have to focus on the women. <laughs> it's true. And so there's a reason there's a shortage of priests, because it really is saying it is up to us, the laity. The Holy Spirit couldn't be clearer to say, my church is in trouble, you have a responsibility, you can do it, good luck, and God bless each of you. Thank you very much. I'm sure you all join me in thanking Kathleen for her um, interesting, entertaining, and um, filled with the spirit comments. <laughs> okay, everyone get out your blue tickets. We're going to have the big drawing. And the first prize is a 50-50 of what we took in when we sold you the tickets. And you get one half, and Future Church will get the other. So get your, t get your track. Okay, and at the same time, while we're doing this, you can start writing your questions so that we can get Kathleen to 
answer them for you. Okay. Oh, Kathleen, would you like to do the honors? Oh, here. Of course, if we're doing a 50-50, we're not changing the church entirely. <laughs> Good one. Okay. Okay, four, uh, the last four digits, or what, three digits? Do the whole thing, yeah. Okay, one, four, five, two, one, oh, eight. Some people are you know, if you don't have your ticket, <laughs> I'm moving on. <laughs> okay, that's the spirit. I know, you can, we gotta move. We can't wait any longer. <laughs> yeah, they should it's it's sort of the, the spirit of this. The, okay. You know, we've waited 2,000 years. It's not it's, it's long enough. Okay, one, four, five, two, one, two, three. All right, you guys. Maybe you need your glasses. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Oh, he's got it. He's got it. Oh, oh yay. Father Britta. Come on. Oh, yours. I, we're happy to give it to the Father. He's our future church. Congratulations. Father Ron Britta. Okay. Oh, it is actually. It's now, correct. 20. Okay. One, four, five, six, four, one, eight. Yay. Way back there. Okay, Tony, who Tony. did a lot of this work tonight. And then uh, one, four, five, four, nine, nine, nine. Did you, are you one of the ones that came from New York? Yes. Yeah, she came all the way from New York for this dinner, isn't that one? Thank you, everyone. Um, and the other thing is, for your silent auction item, on the way out, when you're passing the table, you may go to the closing table and pay and get your item. Thanks. Bill? Oh, we're ready. Okay, questions and answers. Thanks. Kathleen, I'd like to just say, um, you started off by saying, I'm thrilled to be here. We are thrilled that you are with us. And thank you for sharing story, for tears. Uh, you talked about exclusion. Thank you for sharing change and reform with us. You talked to us of change, of compassion. 
I think you touch all of us by sharing family stories and stories that we could relate to. But I think the most of all, I'd like to say thank you for helping us look at alternatives. At this time, I'm waiting for someone from the committee to start to share with us some of the questions that people may have put on paper, and we'll share those with you. I had not had a chance to read this before, so I'll be reading as it was just handed to me. As a member of the Sex Abuse Task Force of the community of San Malachi, would you comment on how the Catholic Church has continued responding for or not responding to this crisis, accountability, grievance, and governance? Um, I, you know, I, I don't think they've been as forth, I don't think they've been wonder, uh, forthcoming. I think that if you talk to people who actually worked on those committees with the bishops, they felt they were dealing with the mafia. And that's saying nice things about the mafia. I, I mean, I think that they have been, I think it's a very closed club and they're having a very difficult time opening themselves, acknowledging what they've done. I mean, obviously there are exceptions everywhere of people who have been genuinely uh, sorry and apologized, um, but I think it's been very, very tough. There is a wonderful book, actually, um, a person who had been abused, who actually worked with the priests who were the abusers. And it's a wonderful book about how many of the priests felt awful about what they did after a while. So I think there is some reconciliation, but I think the hierarchy, uh, you know, what, what causes you to abuse is a very deep psychological problem and, and probably a result of abuse in your own life. So it's. It's very, very tough. I mean, what they did was absolutely wrong. But I think that the, the church hierarchy itself was interested in protecting itself and not interested in the, the, those who had been abused and not interested in really doing what is right and mostly uh, tried to close things down. And I think that's been very tough. But as I say, it has made all of us who grew up believing the priests and were knew everything to understand that they don't, and it has forced us to take greater responsibility um, in conjunction with the hierarchy. And I think that's been, I, I always try to see something positive, but I'm not, I mean, I think they've been really challenged. Don't you agree? I mean, it's true. I, the next person writes, I am a 40-year-old gay man. My partner and I are parishioners at a progressive inner-city Catholic church. Because of the cl clustering process being undertaken by the diocese, it is all but certain that our parish will close. We are not a dwindling congregation, and we are financially in the black, so many members think we are being closed for ideological reasons. If when we close, my partner and I are at a crossroads, my questions are these. First, do you have any counsel for Well, I, look, I am a big believer that I want as more people to join the church as possible because I want it to be a big church. I like big. <laughs> I mean, that's great. And I also, I think that um, when you grow, that's life. 
when you stop growing, that's death. And I think this idea of closing down churches, I think those, there's parts of the Catholic Church would say, we want to be small and pure. I think that's sick. I mean, I don't think there is such a thing as purity. I, I mean, forget it. And so the idea that you can be pure, is that as your ideal really shows that you don't understand about how things grow and that it's, uh, and how life works. So I think they're on to the wrong thing. So I want you to say, I mean, the happiest I am is when somebody listens to me and they say they're gonna stay in the church. Um, on the other hand, if it's so painful for you, I know it's hard to stay. What I have, the church has had a, a terrible history in many ways, as you know. I mean, the Borgers, you know, the, the Borgia Popes, I mean, they slept with their own children and had bass, you know, I mean, you know all this, and they stole, and I mean, one cardinal killed his, uh, his uh, opponent. He figured out to kill him right after he had communion because that was the time he would be least aware of fighting him off. I mean, this is bad stuff. So I want to say that we've had, it's not like we've just had a bad history in the last 50 years. It's been bad throughout its history, but it's also been good. And that's the great thing about life, which is that there's good and there's bad, there's ups and there's downs, there's richness all the time. And what our struggle as human beings, I think, is to find the richness in the church that has lasted for 2,000 years because there's something deep and true and about what our church is. And it, there's a reason you don't last 2,000 years if you don't touch something deep in the human spirit. So I asked this, this wonderful uh, gay man to please stay in the church. I suspect that there will be many um, people who are gay and sympathetic to gays in the Cleveland area who will welcome that you don't have to have a church that looks like this to be a church. You can have one in your living room. You can have one in uh, someplace else. The, you know, a basement. I mean, there's lots of places to have a church. A church is not a building, it's a sense of community. And I bet here in Cleveland, you will create, you have created that great sense of community. Kathleen, how can we get people to think beyond the single issue of abortion in this upcoming election? Well, I don't, thinking is actually, I wouldn't describe it as thinking. <laughs> you did ask me, right? <laughs> I mean, I gotta tell you, I went and I was thrilled today in one sense. Um, I was asked to come and speak at Man Magnificat High School. And it's a fabulous high school. Did you go there? So I couldn't believe that they would allow me to speak there as you've given my, pre my opening remarks. So I was absolutely thrilled. And I thought the nuns were very gutsy and courageous to have me. Um, they wouldn't let me take questions because they didn't want me to be asked about abortion. <laughs> In fact, when they said, well, Kathleen, what would you say? And I told them what I'd say, no, they said, no questions. <laughs> but more disturbing than that, which I, I guess I understand, 
um, was that a number of parents called and protested, which obviously I'm accustomed to, but then the parents wouldn't allow them to, their children to hear me. And I thought, wow, I must be powerful that I, <laughs> I could overcome 10 years or 12 years and, or, or I guess they're in high school, 14 years of parent indoctrination in one 40-minute speech. <laughs> that's pretty cool, huh? So that thrilled me, and it made me, that's why I said, I don't think it is thinking. I mean, as you know, all the studies have shown that when Democrats get elected, abortion rates go down. You know that, right? So, and there's another study saying the exact same thing, because Democrats believe that you should try to provide help for the child, help through the pregnancy, give money, provide jobs for the father. I mean, so all the thing, pro, social programs we believe in actually reduces the rate of abortion. So I always say, are you interested in rhetoric or results? The Republican platform took out their abortion reduction language. They don't want to reduce it, they just want to condemn people and use it as a political issue. So I am happy to talk about it if anybody lets me. And, I, and I'm going to tell you something really interesting, um, at least it was to me. I gave a talk in, um, in Florida about my book, and I was asked by uh, Voice of the Faithful to come and speak. And as you can imagine, of course, I couldn't speak at the Catholic parish. And the week before me, Charlie Curran had been offered to speak, and the, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church opened their doors to him. And that disturbed the bishop, so the next week they couldn't have me at the Greek Orthodox Church, so I went to the Presbyterian Church. <laughs> I know, it's so weird. But, um, but before, I just had to tell you that story, it's just so bizarre. But before that, I had this really interesting experience. I went to a book club, and most of the people in the book club, it was like only 30 people, they were, really, they were all pro-life. They liked my family, so they were willing to listen to me. But they had never heard about St. Thomas Aquinas. They had never heard about the soul entering in the fourth month. They had never heard about women being called the devil's gateway. They had never heard that Democrats actually reduced the number of abortion. So when you say thinking, I don't think there has been a real dialogue about what's going on. I think it has been fear and, and not thinking and I think that's unfortunate because what I love about my church, I love a lot of things, but one of the things that Benedict, uh, Pope Benedict, can you believe that I'm quoting Benedict, um, said, which is really true, is that what the church, our church offers is both reason and faith, rationality, that the human, we are, we are, we are people of hearts, but we also have a mind, and we are supposed to use all parts of our body. Um, and I think too often, we are just not using our mind. So I'm, I'm, that's what I love about the church, and I think that we have to continue to make sure that people know other ways of thinking about it. Um, I'm part of something called uh, Catholic Democrats, and we're making a real effort to go out and organize all across the country, particularly in places like Ohio, Cuyahoga County. <laughs> for the obvious reasons to say um, we have 
a broad view of life, and it is not just, it does not just end at uh, birth, and therefore we need to do lots. Uh, I, think, I think people can, there's this great study that if Democrats go out and try to reach the, Demo the, the, um, the, the religious vote, they, they go up 15 to 17 points as compared to Democrats who don't go out and try to reach the religious vote. So the point is, if you're willing to make the argument, you can be compelling, not 100%, but pretty compelling. And too often, people are afraid. And that's actually, and to talk with somebody they disagree, oh, because its arguments are so difficult. And we're unaccustomed to being, um, have I gone on too long with this answer? Anyway, I'm very, I think you have to learn how to talk about it, and you have to learn how to engage people with whom you disagree um, and, and learn how to talk and get them to listen and get yourself to listen to them. Kathleen, next person says, should we encourage withholding our donations to our parishes for a month or a year? Sure. <laughs> Thank you. I see, that's what I love about the church. A church doesn't last for 2,000 years just because it has the good spirit. It also has an organization. And the great thing about the Catholic Church, it is, it's, a, it's an institution, and institutions respond to power. And money is power. So if that's what you want to do, go ahead. Who wants to do that? <laughs> yeah, I think that's fine. I think you can come up with other alternatives. You know, I mean, you'll figure out what you want to do. I think money talks. This person says, what can I do as a subscriber to the Catholic Universe Bulletin, diocesan newspaper for the Cleveland area, that mainly publishes letters of the conservative right? Take My it over. letters are not printed, and I do try to print them. Any wrong thinking, any ideas? Well, the great thing now is the internet. And so you can start your own Catholic paper on the internet that doesn't take, and you can say, We're the, these are the letters to the editor that aren't published. I mean, literally, I mean, you could, I love that you laugh, but in other words, you don't have to be stuck by, you don't have to be uh, curtailed by them. And there's radio, and there's the internet, and um, somebody could write about tonight. What a great speaker you have. Before the last, oh. okay. I'm gonna, how do you feel about Catholic politicians being called into talk with their bishops? For example, Nancy Pelosi. Actually, I think it's great. No, no. You know why? I got it. I'm gonna. I'm gonna tell you this story. So when I was interviewing for my book, I went to see Kathleen Sebelius, who is, as you know, her father was the governor, uh, Gilligan of Ohio, and she went out to Kansas and she ran for governor and she won, right? She's a Catholic, she went to Catholic school for, I guess, 16 years, 12 years in Ohio and four years at Catholic University, okay? So, and the bishop, uh, she told a lots of she told me lots of stories. She told me how her bishop, you know, said she shouldn't get communion. She told me how the bishop criticized the Catholic college in Kansas for inviting her, and the nun who was head of the college said, oh, 
who pays attention to him? <laughs> but she also described how on one day, she's known the bishop for 30 years. She had been the bishop in Kansas. She'd been the insurance commissioner. Not once in those 30 years had he ever talked to her about abortion, not once. She gets to office, she gets to be governor. He never calls her up and says, I wanna to talk to you. He has a press conference, he has a whole day conference with her on hunger issues about how the Catholic Church and the governor of Kansas can work together, the state of Kansas can work together to reduce hunger. And the next day she reads in the paper how he's condemning her. He never talked to her once. And she realized, he doesn't really, it's a kabuki dance. It's not real. He's being criticized by his donors and his probably bishop, you know, however it worked, the pope, the cardinal, and he's doing it not because he really wants to talk to her and get involved in this. He's doing it just because he has to please a few people. They don't really want to talk about it. So I would be happy if a bishop actually wanted to talk to me. I haven't seen it that much. Yeah. And on this very note, I, I, when I was interviewing my book, I talked to a, a number of fabulous Catholic theologians, um, terrific. And th she said, the bishops, look, you get to be a bishop, not because you know theology, you get to be a bishop because you know how to raise money and be an organizer. Well, you're supposed to. So that, you know, if I were a Nancy Pelosi, I'd bring a Catholic theologian in with me. It's not that funny. You guys are laughing at my very good suggestions. But to tell you the truth, that is really what has to be done. I would bring you in, Chris, because you know more than most of those bishops. They're not there to study theology. I mean, you, even if they were, you'd be good. But, but the point is, that's not what they're doing. And they are, they are political creatures. They're very political. They're, it's a hierarchical, feudal system. It's top down. So they don't they go like this. So it would be good for them. I think it'd be great if they, Nancy Pelosi brought in Chris. Okay, before I, before I ask the last question, I need to share a side of Kathleen that if anyone's wondering, you cannot see the torn skirt. She did a wonderful job. <laughs> the last question is, are you going to run for Senate? Please do. <laughs> thank you. All right, thank you very much. Good luck.